So should we start? Okay, thank you. Mm-hmm. Hare Krishna, Pranayam Maharaj, please accept my humble obeisances. Thank you very much for joining the Monks podcast. Yeah. It's an honor you. to have you, you a few months ago. Thank you. It is an honor to have you a few months ago. And since then, many of the devotees here and other viewers were longing, requesting that you come. And thank you for sparing your time. So today, I thought, Maharaj, we could discuss on the topic of the left, the right, and dharma. Oh, so, that's good. It's good we're avoiding any, any controversial topics. <laughs> yeah, it'll be a miracle if we can avoid controversy while discussing this topic. But, <laughs> so maybe I'll just start with my lay understandings of the terms, and then especially as how they apply to a discussion about dharma. And then you could elaborate on that. So the way I understand it is that the left is concerned with say those who are left behind by existing social hierarchies, political systems, economic structures. So that is their concern. On the other hand, the right are concerned with what is right with the existing systems, be they political, economic, social. And so in general, the right tend to be more conservative and the left tend to be more liberal. And dharma, on the other hand, talks about timeless principles for harmonizing ourselves with who we are and with reality. So in that sense, would dharma uh, be more in terms of the left or more in terms of the right? At least in India, as well as in America, religion is associated with the right. But at the same time, bhakti traditions often did favor the disenfranchised. Many of the great saints in India were from the lower castes and right. so so in that sense this is that is the broad context for the discussion so yes you would- uh, yeah what um, I'll begin with this if we look at Bhagavad Gita hmm. or if we just use common sense then what we find is that there are two realities in, to life one is hierarchy, one is equality. Okay. There are legitimate and necessary hierarchies. For example, parents and children. They have equal importance as living beings, but in terms of authority, the parents have to govern the children and uh, their teachers and students. There are uh, experts and non-experts, and so in any field. So there are natural hierarchies. Some people are more talented than other people in many fields. Some people create businesses and they employ people. And uh, under proper circumstances, the employees are very fortunate and feel they're fortunate to have a good job. And so, Everywhere we look in the world, there are natural, legitimate, and necessary hierarchies. At the same time, uh, there is an ultimate sense in which we are equal. Hmm. And so the real issue is how you balance these things. So if we say that now, for example, what you said is, is sort of the general perception that religion tends to be more on the right. But what we find is in uh, studies of social science, 
that religious people or people who claim affiliation with some religion tend to give more charity than people who are not religious. And of course, charity is generally given to, to needy people. And so there, I, I think we have to get past a lot of uh, non-scientific stereotypes mm -hmm. and, and, and see what's really happening. So uh, the real problem, as Krishna explains in the Bhagavad Gita 1820, is not that there's a group of people who care about, let's say, the less fortunate or the karmically disadvantaged. I mean, you know, that's good. Obviously, society has to care about people who are not doing as well. Uh, and it's also important and necessary that there's a group that maintains certain principles and hierarchies. And uh, because the idea that somehow you have justice by tearing down hierarchies is, of course, false. Mm. Because if you give equal opportunity, you will not have equal outcome. Because yeah, everyone yes. doesn't have the same abilities. It's like in India, people are applying for IIT. If there's, you cannot have everyone admitted and yeah. there's a selection process, it's hierarchical. And if you don't allow a fair choice of the best students, then in the name of equal outcome, you have destroyed equal opportunity. And so there's a sense in which equal opportunity and equal outcome are in some ways mutually exclusive. That's true, that's true Maharaj, perfectly true. Yes, yeah, so at the same time, just because someone, let's say, doesn't have an equal amount of ability, doesn't mean they do not deserve equal dignity under the law and, and, and an opportunity to have a good life. Mm -hmm. So, 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 the, so the, I, I think on the left and the right, uh, there, are, there are truths you know, in saying that we should care about all members of society, that's true. And saying that there are natural hierarchies that should be maintained, that's also true. Yes, the problem is, the problem is extremism. The problem is on both sides, left and right. Because for example, on the right, they, in the name of freedom of opportunity, uh, they really do not show much compassion, let's say, in terms of America, for, in terms of people who need health care. And they're not at all clear that, that you know, they say they oppose Obama's plan, but they're never very clear on how they're going to guarantee that everyone has good health care. I mean, how can a civilized society allow for people, including children, women, men, to be unnecessarily in pain, to be unnecessarily disabled when we have the science to help them. I mean, there's an irony here in that the right uh, tend to be much more than the left Christian. And if there's anything that Jesus would obviously support, it's the notion that everyone get proper care. I mean, nothing could be a more Jesus position. And so for people claiming to be followers of Jesus to fight against 
healthcare, and they always say, well, no, we are not against uh, universal healthcare. We just want to uh, do it in a more efficient way, but they, they're, they're, it's never clear how they want to do that. And almost all their energy is put into defeating an existing healthcare program, hmm. and they put very little energy into establishing an alternative. So hypo hypocrisy, which of course is one of the uh, great uh, famous historical characteristics of so-called religious people, hypocrisy. And so on the other hand, the people on the left who claim they don't really want equality because actually they are reverse racist and they raise up one class of people to some type of exalted status where they are, they can do no wrong, even when they do lots of wrong. And on the other hand, uh, anyone that anyone that disagrees with them is evil and bad and they hate them. And so they don't really want equality because they're so hateful. Yes, much. I think George Orwell said that in communism, all people are equal, but some are more equal than others. Yes, so... and, and, and anyone that disagrees, we see because if just, just a moment about Marxism, the fact that the greatest atrocities, the greatest, the, lar the largest number of people murdered in history uh, uh, took place in the 20th century, done by Marxists, by the way, sort of an yeah. interesting little factoid. thousand uh, people, I think. What's that? Almost 100,000 people. It was more than World War I, World War II combined. No, 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 no. It's, it's, it's probably over 100 million. Oh, yeah. Sorry, 100 million, not 100,000. Sorry. But what's interesting is that what we, all, what we always hear is that, well, Stalin wasn't a good Marxist. Uh, Mao wasn't a good Marxist. Really? I think they were. They were certainly very studious. Because here are some facts about Marxism. Um, in Marxism, beginning with the status quo, which is capitalism, I mean, clearly in the past there were hunting gathering societies, there were agrarian societies, but if we, but Marxism begins with the present and the past, history is just used in order to derive analytic principles. Hmm. But so we have the status quo, which is capitalism. And then the second stage is what Marx calls the dictatorship of the proletariat. Uses the word dictatorship. Yes. That's interesting. Okay. Yes. Yes. Good old Carl. Sweet Carl. Okay. <laughs> because, um, because the capitalists won't just give up. And, and so you need a dictatorship. And then the third stage is Eden, you know, the Garden of Eden. The third stage is the, the communist utopia, the Marxist utopia. Now, what we know, what, what all scholars know, you know, that have any, that aren't simply fanatics, is that Marx was operating with, was assuming a completely non-scientific anthropology. In other words, a completely illusory concept of human nature. Because after all, Marx, uh, when was he born? Uh, do you happen to have that number on the top of your head? Karl Marx was born in 1818. He was born in 1818. And so that was, Marx was born 100 years before there was even such a, th a field of psychology. 
and so on. Uh, and so in terms of, uh, in terms of understanding human nature, like what's possible, how, how do human beings behave? And can you really have a Marxist utopia? Um, he had very little practical information of human nature. And so we now know with psychology and social science and sociology and so on, we now know that his whole plan is based on a notion of human nature, which is just wildly inaccurate and unscientific. And, in the and, sense that, that humans are- In, in the sense is, that, that humans are somehow driven by intellectualized concepts of virtue, or that people will just naturally act in somehow like some utopian, almost like a uh, before the fall, like people used to act in the Garden of Eden before Adam, Adam and Eve, you know, bit the apple. That in other words, what we know is that people know they're selfish and they are, um, and sociologically under certain conditions, they'll do certain things, won't do certain things. So the idea that people will just behave like angels, if you just, you know, have them read Marx's books is of course, turn, turns out to be absurd. It, it, it's it's mm -hmm. absurdly inaccurate. In any case, so here's what you have. You have capitalism, and then the goal is the Marxist Garden of Eden. And so in the middle, actually it's not a Garden of Eden because they have industry, so utopia. So, okay. so in the middle, you have a dictatorship. Now, since the third stage, the utopian stage is just absurdly, impractical and will never happen until the next Satya Yuga. Uh, therefore, every Marxist country inevitably, necessarily stops in the position of dictatorship. Okay. And therefore, uh, every, I mean, look at, you look at Cuba, Soviet Union, China, Cambodia, you know, name your hall of horrors where where you stop at dictatorship and marx justifies it sometimes because there are recalcitrant in other words stubborn uncooperative social classes so those classes and because marx was thinking sociologically if you look at western intellectual history sociology sort of got going quite a bit before psychology and so Marx is thinking sociologically, and he thinks that uh, in terms of social dynamics, if necessary, and it probably is necessary, you eliminate social classes. Well, the uh, sort of like the unvarnished word for eliminating social classes is genocide. Okay. That's kind of like the, if you want to use plain talk, plain language, genocide. So in committing- the Genocide of the classes who are in power? So that yeah, whatever social club, basically everyone that doesn't have an I love Marx bumper sticker on their car. You know, it's, um, so you eliminate entire social classes. And again, the uh, simple word for that is genocide. Yes, that's terrible. So, okay. so on the left, they, um, plus, uh, Plus Marx's, uh, you know, uh, conception of religion as a basically mental 
like a form of madness. It's like a drug. It's like when you take a drug, you become mm. basically crazy. So religion, the opium, the people, because it has them thinking about the next life and therefore they don't have to pay attention to this life yes. and turn the other cheek and all kinds of very impractical things. So, but anyway, it's not just Marx. I mean, you have, the real point is, the real Mark, point- just a minute. Can I just- uh... Yeah. respond to a couple of thoughts what you mentioned so you know that two three things i could discern here from what you said is that you know the in the with the leftist ideology maybe their intentions are good but they are based on an unrealistic conception of uh, human nature sorry I, I won't grant that much okay okay fine you know no, no, okay. I, I think i think to destroy religion is not a good intention okay no okay let's say that the, if, if if we presume that they have some concern for the underprivileged but the way they try to bring about equality that presumes that, as you said, if human nature, if people are just educated properly, they will all behave properly. So that is a misunderstanding of human nature. Well, also, and people that don't behave properly, even when they're off of the knowledge, you just kill them. The point here yeah. is that if you look at Marx, his philosophy engendered hatred. So it's not equality. It's not equality because you hate and kill people that disagree with you. So you achieve equality by killing everybody that disagrees with you. And um, so it's like using concern for power to exercise hatred toward the concern for the poor to exercise hatred toward the wealthy. Yeah, and actually so, what we find in sort of like this uh, self-righteous, not righteous, Western white, leftist um, uh, concern is that it's based more on hatred than love. And I'll give one, it, it's actually really fueled more by hatred. I'll give you one obvious example, which I, I don't know if I gave you the example last time we talked to South Africa. Oh, no, South Africa, no. Okay. You're, I don't know, you may remember this. You're much younger than me, obviously, although you, know, you could never tell by looking at us. But oh, yes, years ago, I think back in the 80s, there was a that big anti-apartheid movement. Yeah. Now, what's interesting is, okay, let's ask a simple question. On the one hand, we know that all the people demonstrating, especially the, the white leftists, who are some of the most uh, extraordinary hypocrites on earth, especially, especially the white leftists, uh, we know that they hated the apartheid regime. They tended to hate the ruling powers in Africa. And we also know they expressed great concern for the indigenous African, black African population. So both those attitudes were there. And so we can do a simple test to see what was really driving them. Was it really, uh, was it really love for, I mean, true compassion, true human concern and, and uh, for the black population of South Africa or was psychologically, were they even more driven by hatred, some sort of weird hatred for right-wing whites. And if we study it, it seems that the answer is it was more hatred. And here's the proof. 
that once apartheid collapsed by all this international pressure, um, Nelson Mandela, of course, became the leader and then he passed away. And then you got uh, a Mr. Jacob Zuma who took over mm -hmm. the party, who was by all accounts, one of the absolutely most corrupt, violent uh, national leaders on earth. For example, there was a miner strike. These are black miners. And the president Zuma, he owned stock in the mine. So he sent the army, the army to massacre hundreds of mine workers, just shot them dead. Now, if the white regime would have done this, probably all the, you know, liberal democracies would have invaded South Africa. But what's interesting is that he just massacred all these mine workers. Matt just shot them dead in cold blood. This was which year? I never heard about it. Yeah, that's the point. Yeah, look it up. You can look it up. You're a good researcher. But what's interesting is that no one gave a damn. Not one word of protest. South Africa has one of the highest murder rates in the world. It's, it's an extremely dangerous country. No one cares. So it's just like, for example, let's say there are people in this world you care about. Let's say your family, your parents, or your siblings, or whatever. Your family, extended family, you care about them. Now, that care is lifelong, isn't it? Yes. I mean, for your entire life, you care about those people. If they're in special difficulty, of course, and the family kind of unites to help. But, but even when there's not some, you know, that kind of difficulty, it's your family, you care about them. Or your dear friends, you always care about them no matter what situation they're in. But what we find is that these leftists do not care about people once they have vented their hatred. So they really could not care less about the people of South Africa they, because now they have something else to hate. And so they've moved on to their next hatred. God, so it's almost like you know, it's almost like uh, the government becomes God, and you use uh, the government tries to it's a totalitarian government which grabs power by using the excuse of concern for the poor. Yes, and for example, for example, in America they say Black Lives Matter. Yeah, so that's I'll, a very charged slogan now. Yeah, I'll ask a simple question: Do Black Lives simply matter? which, I mean, of course they do. Or do black lives only matter when you have an opportunity to hate right-wing whites? And it turns out only when you have an opportunity to hate right-wing whites. Because yeah. it turns out that of all the African-Americans criminally killed in the United mm -hmm. States, 90% of them, nine zero, are killed by blacks. blacks. Yes. Yeah. So, but those lives never matter. In other words, if you really care about black people, say in America, you just, you actually care about them, then 
all this time, you would have been in those neighborhoods doing all you could to help those people, trying to fix it, trying to lobby the government for programs. Let's improve the schools. Let's, let's, you know, ironically, ironically, Hmm. the law-abiding Black citizens, who are most of the Black community, the law-abiding Black citizens want more police, not less. Because when you cut down the number of policemen, the first people to suffer are the Blacks. Yeah. And so, you know, it's interesting because generally, I, I know I'm, I'm kind of left bashing, but there's just certain things that need to be said. For example, behind, there's a type of uh, philosophical, sociological determinism, which is behind the leftist position. In other words, if it's the case, as it is, that let's say in America that Blacks kill white policemen almost 20 times as often as white policemen kill blacks, which the press, yeah, the press will never mention because it's not politically correct. But, but anyway, without drawing any conclusions from that, just simple statistics, and in general, commit many, many times more murders than whites or Latinos, and so it doesn't mean they're inferior. It doesn't mean, but it does mean there's a, a real problem. Now, the leftist explanation of these facts, there are many other similar statistics, the, the leftist explanation is that it's the fault of the white people. Somehow the white people have forced the blacks to commit these murders and the, and the blacks are actually not morally responsible for it. Now, I find this to be myself anti-black racism because Legally, if we talk now, forget sociology, just talk about legal terms, the only conditions under which someone is not responsible for a crime they commit, not morally responsible, is if uh, that person is mentally impaired yeah. or a child. Also, um, so in the sense, when they are saying that the blacks are victims, so when you said it's, it's like anti-black racism, so basically they're infantilizing the blacks, yeah, saying that you don't yeah. have any sense of agency. Yes, no agency. And also they're introducing a deterministic view of history. In other words, that, that, that historical circumstances uh, drive people beyond their free will to act in certain ways, hence they are not morally responsible. But my point is this, if we are going to deploy here historical determinism, and if we want to be scientific, we also have to apply historical determinism to white racists. And, and by this, I mean, uh, because America, in my view, is there is no systemic racism in my view. I mean, I mean, obviously there are racists, but say the whole system is racist, I think is, is actually scientifically not demonstrable. But in any case, and, and you can't demonstrate it anecdotally, by the way. Yeah. That's all we get in the press is anecdotes. We never get actual statistics. But the point is, if you look at, and, and I mean like the really low class, ignorant, repulsive, white racist, those are the people I'm talking mm -hmm. about. 
like you know, a lot of the people went to Charlottesville. I mean, that group of people, ignorant, crazy, white racist. What we find is these are who are referred to as white supremacists. Yeah, yeah, say white yeah, yeah. Okay. Let's say white supremacists. So what we find is that many of them come from very bad backgrounds. Oh, so you are saying the same argument could be turned around. I'm saying either historical determinism is valid or it's invalid. If it's valid, if you want to use a theory of historical determinism to exonerate one group of people, you mm -hmm. cannot apply that theory selectively. Because if you do apply it selectively and say, well, only Blacks are subject to historical determinism and therefore are morally uh, free of any culpability, but white people are not. In other words, the sins of white people or Chicanos or Asians or whatever cannot be explained away by historical determinism. Then what you're saying, and this is extremely racist, that black people are somehow more subject to be controlled by the forces of history and have less power or intelligence mm -hmm. to assert their own will, even in the face of difficult circumstances. And, and therefore, uh, that's racism, that's anti-black racism. So, so if yeah. you believe that historical determinism, or you could say, well, no, it's because the forces acting on blacks were much more severe, but not always. There are some blacks who are billionaires or millionaires or famous or powerful politically, economically, in the entertainment industry, whatever. And there are some whites who literally are starving. Yeah. Who are, you know, there, there are blacks who are leading intellectuals and there are whites who are illiterate and, you know, truly stupid. Yeah. So therefore, um, and you know, another way, thing we, with respect to historical determinism, you could also take it backwards and say, even whites were not always in comfort. When they were, whites were serfs in Europe, even they were enslaved at a particular time in history. Absolutely. So, and sometimes by non-whites. And you know, what's interesting is that slavery was abolished in America before it was abolished in Africa. Because black yeah. leaders, you know, we're talking about sub-Saharan Africa here. And of course the Muslims had a huge slave trade. So black African leaders had black slaves and slavery was only abolished completely, say in Western Africa, uh, around World War One. Oh. So and of I course, also read somewhere, Maharaj, that it is not so much the whites went to Africa and enslaved the blacks. There were blacks who were already enslaved by other blacks, and those were sold quite often to the whites. So in yeah. a sense, it is, it's not so, exactly, yeah. So, so all I'm saying is, it's just what you find with extremists is that they deny science. They deny history. So when you go, again, not, not sort of an educated liberal class that cares about disadvantaged mm. people. I mean, I, I would say I'm one of them. I would include myself in that group. And there are many ways in which I'm not at all, you know, a hard conservative and I'll explain how I'm not. So I believe absolutely 
that everyone should have a good life unless someone's just really just shamelessly exploiting the system. But any normal, decent person, which is most people of all groups, should have a good life. And, but what we find on the left is massive science denial, massively. And that's why if you read the, 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 the leftist press, what you'll never find is to t real science, real social science. You won't find real history. So if you look on the right, I'll tell you what the big uh, flaw on the right is. And we can look at people like uh, Ben Shapiro, who I think sort of typifies one of the major, oh, he's very smart, but I think he has one fatal flaw. And you can look at the sort of, well, that Ayn Rand, you know, I, mean, I won't use a pejorative here, Ayn Rand, an author that wrote Atlas Shrugged and other books like that. Yeah. And so one, I think one of the biggest blunders on the right, which shows they actually don't understand how the real world works, is to assert that in society, human beings uh, should have negative rights, but not positive rights. And these are legal terms. Okay. These are legal terms. A negative right means the right to be free of some form of abuse, the right not to have something happen to you. For example, the right to be free of, of let's say, being robbed or raped or murdered or okay. abused in any way. So the right not to have something be done to you, that's mm. called a negative right. A positive right is uh, let's say the right to medical care or the right to the right to um, a good education mm. and so on the right to be safe in your home so they say these are these rights people are not entitled to yes they do say that really yes yeah. I watched a few of Ben Shapiro's videos and I, I didn't come across this till now but then it's in the constitution itself that every all people are equal and they're equal before the law. So do they deny that? Uh, oh, first, oh, well, there's some questions. Let me say, the South Africa story you mentioned is not correct. I live in South Africa. The miners that were shot and killed were done by police, not the army. Also the police in one sense was defending themselves from armed miners. Of course, not with guns, but with sticks, knives and the weapons. Uh, I will do more research. I will do more research, but I did watch a news report on that. And uh, black on black crime is based on systemic racism. No, that's actually not what I said. Uh, KDG, that's actually not what I said. Uh, so uh, anyway, it's good that we don't disagree on that point because I, I, I don't think that uh, so Dunya said it's Dunya Das. It's a generational issue. Uh, Black Lives Matter is about a systemic genocide against Black Africans for Americans for hundreds of years. Systemic genocide, systematic genocide. Uh, I find that to be inconceivably inaccurate system systematic genocide 
that is so far from any real history that I, I don't know what to say about systematic genocide where you're just killing everyone. Um, uh, yeah, I don't want to say about that. And then let's see, KD, you are drawing conclusions from statistics. Uh, well, that's one of the, it's not the only, but it's, it's one of the main methods that's used in social science. Uh, as far as the conclusions I drew, I understand these are controversial topics. I understand that. And then some people are disturbed. As far as drawing conclusions from statistics, I don't understand how you would prove racism or not racism if you didn't have statistics or if you didn't have facts. So uh, I'm not sure how else to be objective. Then another one from Dunya, people who own people who own people as property for over a hundred years, including the majority of the founding fathers show systemic institutional racism. The founding fathers, including Washington, refused to end slavery when they had the opportunity to enshrine said freedom in the Constitution and Declaration. Uh, okay. Um, by the way, I'm not saying that people didn't do bad things. I'm not saying that I'm not trying to uh, exonerate the founding fathers, but let's look at that comment. Um, slavery at the time of the American Revolution, uh, slavery was practiced in almost every country in the world, certainly including Africa, certainly including, so slavery was the norm. Perhaps the only country that didn't have slavery was India, but then they had a type of indentured servitude. So I mean, basically you could say that slavery was the norm throughout the world, certainly including Africa. And uh, as far as the founding fathers, the majority of them held slaves. I'll, I'll, I'd have to look that up. I know Virginia was a very important colony and it was obviously a slave state. Uh, systemic, yes, I would say at the time, at that time it was definitely systemic institutional racism. So that was America, uh, as I said, ended slavery before Africa. So if you look at if you look at the, and, and ending slavery and even fighting a war over it uh, and, you know, I don't know, thousands of millions of, of northerners actually dying in, in, in that war. Um, if you look at the whole abolitionist movement, which began of course, uh, many years before the civil war what you find is uh, huge numbers of people, politicians, ordinary people, many, many, many Christians. Uh, Christians played a leading role in the abolitionist movement. Uh, that there was a, a huge part of the country that was adamantly against slavery. 
And so, um, and they even passed a law that because America was expanding, there were more and more states coming into the union as the population went westward. And uh, they passed a law that all the new states had to be free states, they could not be slave states. So that didn't end it in the South, but it, 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 it shows where things were going. And, and, and so, this, this drive against slavery, the drive to abolish slavery, the drive to prevent slavery from spreading in America was a, an abolitionist movement of white people. It was an abolitionist movement of white people. And so to say the whole country was just, you know, systematically, it's all I'm saying is we have to look at the real history. I'm not saying that these things were good. I'm not saying that uh, the people didn't do things wrong. They did many, many things wrong. They did things very seriously wrong. But, and even if the, let's say the constitutional principles were obviously followed hypocritically by not really giving freedom to everyone, but they remained as a reference point. In other words, when you have when you have the right principles, even if a society is not uh, uniformly following those principles, it's good you have the principles because then you can be called to task, you can be shamed, you can be, you know, it can be shown that you're not following your own principles. And that's exactly what happened. And so when I participated in the civil rights movement uh, in the 60s, uh, the whole civil rights movement was based on demanding that existing principles be enforced and honored. The civil rights movement was not asking for new principles. The civil rights movement did not claim that America has all the wrong principles. Rather, it was demanding that the principles be enforced, that there be justice. The famous speech by Martin Luther King, that you know, justice, quoting from the Bible about justice. So, so many, many white civil rights workers, you know, gave their lives, and of course, many blacks. So, I, I think the real issue here, I think the real issue here, I'll get to the real point in my view, is that I'm sure we can all agree that racism is bad. I'm sure we can all agree that people should be judged by their character, by their, by who they are, their ability, not by some external factor. And it's not just racism, by the way. For example, if you look at countries where everyone is the same race, you find that, that certain groups of people who are easily identified either by the way they speak, which is a big deal, like in My Fair Lady, or it can be what religion they have, it can be their race, it can be their economic position, but the tendency of human beings, and this is a demonic tendency, the tendency of human beings to identify a particular group of people and discriminate against them and make their lives miserable and exploit them is something which is much bigger than racism. Race is just one marker. It's just one way to identify a particular group that you want to lord it over. And there are many other ways that people do that. 
So you find it's very common in history that countries where everyone is the same race, you have exactly the same attitudes and exploitation and abuse and so on. So it, it's the general problem of human beings uh, in the mode of passion and ignorance um, identifying with their bodies. This is the real point. Identifying with their bodies and then abusing people with different kinds of bodies. And that you find throughout history. And one of the ways that's done is through race. So we agree that there should not be racism. However, um, I think what we can disagree on without calling each other names is how do you get there? What's the best method to, um, what's the best method to achieve a Krishna conscious society or even just a moral society in which people are not abused unfairly. I mean, abuse means unfairly. Where people are not abused, either by race, by religion, by, by anything. So how do you get there? Now, the tendency on the left is that even if, even if you are against racism, strongly against racism, if you don't agree with their tactics, if you don't agree with all their assumptions, then you're a racist, even if you're not a racist. So for example, I read an article about Antifa, you know, which is one of the most fascist groups in the country. Ironically, they call themselves anti-fascist, definitely one of the most fascist groups in the country. And uh, they, it, 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 they have an official policy that re they reject anti-racist conservatives. They reject anti-racist conservatives. Because this is the typical, and, and just one word about the left. Um, the left, the fascists, by the way, originally come from the left, not the right. I don't know if people are aware of this. Yeah, I, when I read that, I was stunned for the first time. It is actually somehow by historical uh, maybe reconceptualization or whatever it was portrayed as if fascism came from the right. But no, Mussolini was a Marxist. Yeah. Mussolini, who began fascism, and Hitler was a student of Mussolini. Mussolini was a Marxist. But he noticed, another Marxist noticed, that um, Marx's predictions were not coming true. Hmm. As Marx predicted that there will be anti-capitalist revolutions, and although it happened in the so in Russia, it didn't happen in Europe, and especially not in, in Western Europe. And so, and so the Marxists, like Mussolini, were trying to understand why didn't Marx's prophecies come true, and they concluded that there was a, a mistake in Marxism. They didn't reject all of it. There was a mistake in Marxism. Namely, they believed that people would be greatly motivated by identification with economic classes. And therefore, the working class would rise up against the owner class or the employer class. So they thought that's what will motivate human beings. Mussolini concluded 
that there was another force in the world which motivated people more than economic classes, and that was nationalism. And we have to remember that during the 20s and, and back then when Mussolini was really getting, getting going, that um, nationalism was a revolutionary thing. Nationalism also, by the way, really began, if you can go all the way back to Napoleon, because nationalism was a, was a leftist position, not right wing, it was leftist. Because oh, nationalism, yes, because nationalism was, arose in opposition to divine right monarchy. If you look at the history of, if you look at the history of European monarchy, uh, if you look at the history of European monarchy, I just got to say one thing regarding South Africa. I promised the person that made that comment, I will study it. I will be honest and fair. But uh, I, you know, the fact that someone lives in a country doesn't mean that they necessarily have, many people live in America and have no idea what's really going on in America. So, but I, I will be honest and look that up. But if you look at um, nationalism, it would, because under the system of European monarchy, it didn't matter what country you were from. For example, the present Queen of England and that house, which is called the House of, um, what is it? Uh, Win not Winchester, um, Windsor. The House of Windsor, the present royal family of, of the United Kingdom actually was the House of Hanover. They're German. And so when they, and so at a certain point in history, going back to George the first, um, the closest person in line for the English throne was a German. And so they brought over the house of Hanover. And then during the World War Wars, you couldn't have a German name in England, so they changed it to Windsor. But so the whole, the whole notion of divine right monarchy was that political power is not situated in a nation state, it's in a, a family which has been designated by God as having the right to rule, divine right, divine right monarchy. So Napoleon, ironically, was the one that promoted nationalism as a, in opposition to divine right monarchy. Okay. And so if you look at the history of, so nationalism, and then of course you have German unification in the second half of the 19th century and then the it Italian unification. And so nationalism was a big thing. Nationalism was very strong, probably even more than today. It was like the big ideology that was sweeping through Europe. And therefore Mussolini concluded that people are much more nationalistic than they, than they are identified with their particular economic class. And therefore he took a lot of Marxism because he was a Marxist, including mm -hmm. dictatorship, he liked that part. He liked the part that the state controls everything, including the economy, and that you get rid of people who disagree with you. And but he just made it nationalistic, and therefore the Nazi Party was the nationalist, you know, socialist, socialist, nationalist, because that's really what fascism is. It's national socialism. And so, and so anyway. Getting back to my main point, um, what we see today is if, like say in Antifa, that even if you are against racism, I mean, I mean strongly against racism, you're committed against racism, 
and you even want to help solve the problem. If you are not leftist, if you don't believe their version of history, if you don't believe their sort of unsubstantiated sociology about systemic this and that, if you don't just toe the party line, then you're evil, then you're a racist. Not because you actually uh, think that a certain race should be exploited or should be kept down or anything like that. You can be totally committed to equal opportunity. You can be totally committed to helping everyone to achieve a good life. But if you don't buy into their particular interpretation of history, which I find to be not at all very well founded, if you don't buy into their interpretation of history, and if you don't buy into their program of what should be done, then you are a racist. Not because you're a racist, but because you don't agree with them on, on certain historical interpretation, on certain sociological or psychological principles. And, and, and so that demand that you agree on every point or you will be you know, hated and you will be rejected and you will be punished to the extent that we can punish anyone, you know, canceled or whatever, uh, that's just, that's normal communism, fascism, that's just, that's what they do. I mean, I mean every country they took over, that's what they do. And, and when they have the power to kill dissidents, they do kill them. Wow. And so my, that's my position. My position is actually moderate liberal and, and conservative on some points. So I'm not, I'm not, I'm not a rightist. I'm not like Ben Shapiro or, you know, these people. I, no. um, and, and so my, my criticism of the right is, maybe I should get more to that. Uh, just before we go to that, the one thing is probably if we consider from a Krishna conscious perspective, yeah. many of the people who come to our movement seem to have a leftist orientation because in a sense, that's why they're exploring, they're exploring alternative spirituality. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. some of the what? Could you repeat that? Okay. No, many of the people who come to our movement in the West, they seem to have a leftist orientation. That yeah. is why they're exploring something alternative. So in some ways, uh, we do have the, the, the people coming to Krishna consciousness who, are, who have a lot of leftist sympathies, their environmental concern or concern for social justice or things like that. So on one side, it seems left is against established religion, but there are, if somebody is an alternative religion, then it makes it more sympathetic. Like in, in India, Hinduism, left demonizes it but then it supports uh, it supports uh, islam it supports christianity yeah and it whitewashes even if they do something wrong things but if hindus do something some small wrong thing that will be made it to be systematically systemic uh, persecution of the minorities yes 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 of course by the way i want to thank danya for his comment i appreciate that <laughs> um I'm sorry, I'm not addressing all these comments you're making, but uh, is the saying you don't complete the opportunity only. So, someone, I apologize just for an interruption, but um, 
the situation the black people is not equal to the white is the same in Latin America. You can't compare the opportunity of the people in the favelas, that's the slums, uh, with the rest of the population. Uh, again, I'm not disagreeing. I'm not disagreeing that we have a problem. And since most white people are in the mode of passion, you know, or people of all races, I mean, how many people in any of these countries are really in the mode of goodness? I mean, it's a small minority. And so, yeah, we're, no one is disagreeing that we have a problem. In fact, this modern society with its, you know, sort of greed and, and lust and, and is just making hell on earth. We know that. I and mean, that's why we joined the Hare Krishna movement. So my position is, I'm not saying there's not a problem. It's just that my, you know, I, I feel my, I have certain intellectual integrity, at least I, I try to have. I hope I'm succeeding, but I try to act with intellectual integrity. And therefore, because, I mean, I care very much about the facts. I care very much about the history, the real history. And there's certainly fault on all sides that the real history, and as far as the statistics, KD, my old friend KD mentioned the statistics. And of course, I mean, statistics aren't everything. And you could say human side, but they're, when there's disagreement, there has to be some reference point, something you can refer to, which is reasonably objective. So, um, yes, we agree there's a problem. I mean, that's why, that's why we're trying to promote Krishna consciousness. That's why I am. I mean, I'm trying to do my best, whatever that is, to spread Krishna consciousness uh, because the world is in a horrible situation and there is all kinds of envy and hatred on all sides. And, and um, but again, I reserve the right, and I really do reserve it, the right to read history and come to my own conclusions. I don't think that people on the left necessarily are just much better than me at analyzing history. I, you know, maybe I just don't see it that way based on what I've heard from them. And so I can disagree on what the history is, not radically, not disagree in the sense that by saying something idiotic, like, you know, the blacks had no disadvantages or slavery was actually, you know, many of them were happy as slaves. I mean, I'm not saying stupid things like that. We understand the problem. However, what was the real history? What's the cause of the problem today? Obama, for example, was shouted down because he said the real problem, and this actually is borne out by social science, is uh, the lack of black paternity, you know, having children, the father leaving. And, and actually, that's the real indicator. And then, of course, you can take it back a step and say, well, why do they do that? What's the source of that behavior? Is it caused by historical? You know, we can go on and on and on. But in fact, uh, this problem, which Obama point, which any any serious uh, social scientist is going to agree with, that the real indicator, because you know certain black people become very wealthy, very successful, highly educated, and have great lives, hmm. and so you have to, you know, if they were, if you actually had real slavery, like everyone is kept down, no one is successful because no one is permitted to be successful. 
everyone is kept down. I mean, for example, in the best American universities, everyone knows, and even the courts have had to intervene, that there's massive race, anti-white racism in university admissions. And, and that's been proven in many court cases. I mean, legal court cases. And, and you know, the, the huge, uh, you know, this, so there's been a huge push for diversity, the whole diversity movement. Yeah. Whole, I mean, if you come on, you know, many campuses in America, if you even just try to give a talk with a different interpretation of history regarding racism, you know, you'd be lucky if you're not physically assaulted or thrown off the campus. And so, and, and so the racism certainly is not systematic or systemic in the university system. If there is, it's, it's the opposite. Yeah, it seems there's also anti-Asian for Asians, Indians and Chinese now to get into Ivy League universities is extremely difficult. There yeah. are some court cases going on also because of that. Yeah, but no one cares about that. Yeah. And, and so you could say, for example, you could ask a simple question, is the NBA racist? Nobody will ask that. It's prominently no, because I, you know, I, as being trained as a scholar, I'm. I just want to be fair and look at all the facts and what's really going on. We know, for example, that that uh, the absence of black fathers raising their children is scientifically, scientifically, not ideologically, the single biggest problem. The single biggest problem because it's it's the it's a powerful indicator that 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 children that grow up without a father are much more likely statistically statistics again are much more likely to commit suicide much more likely to uh, become criminals much more likely to be incarcerated much more likely to be poor so that's yeah. that, that that that's a huge indicator and um what we find is, and this is interesting, and I'm not drawing conclusions. I'm just pointing out that if you're a serious thinker, if you're if you're not just sort of like a wild ideologue, if you actually want to be rational and not just sort of give yourself a cheap thrill by self-righteousness, then the fact is that this problem, this main problem, increased. It, the problem increased as civil rights increased. Civil rights. Yes, if you look at the black community, say in the 50s if, or the 40s, the 30s, if you look at the American black community before the civil rights movement, uh, there was just a fraction of the divorce there is now, or not even divorce, just, I mean, out of wedlock, just people having babies when they're not married and have no intention of staying together, uh, black families much more stable. Uh, criminality was very low. Hmm. Um, unemployment. Uh, there was more unemployment among whites than among blacks. Hmm. This does not mean the civil rights movement was a mistake. That's not the point. Yeah, I think along with the civil rights movement, there was a big emphasis on social welfare. And then well, that yeah, well, I, I think, I, yeah, 
That's part of it, I think. But but see, those are the kinds of questions. If you're actually an open-minded thinker, if you're not enslaved by ideology and self-righteousness, and you're really willing to just open your mind and look at all the facts and try to come to a conclusion, you know, why is it that the black community in in, in some ways, you know, obviously in, in very obvious ways, was in a humiliating, uh, abused position, and in other ways uh, was doing better? in terms of families staying together, in terms of employment, in terms of, I mean, there were black colleges opening up. You can, I mean, there's a, there's a whole discussion of the philosophy of um, Booker T. Washington, who was one of the main black leaders at the, toward, I think, toward the end of the 19th century. Very famous, you know, he's actually world famous. He was an American black leader. He founded uh, probably the best black technical university still today perhaps in the world, or at least in America, I should say, Tuskegee Tech. Uh, and you had a, a dramatic increase. The number of Blacks were becoming scientists, were becoming uh, you know, engineers, and just becoming... And, and so he had a certain philosophy of how he thought Blacks could be emancipated, how Blacks could be... Uh, rise to a position of equal dignity and justice in the society. And then you had other views like Du Bois in, at, at, in the Northeast, and they were friends, but they, you know, they sharply disagreed. And Du Bois is more the, the voice that won. It was like, you know, political action and everything. And so I'm not saying that one was absolutely right and that it was absolutely wrong, but there were different philosophies. There were different interpretations of, you know, what's the best way to get out of this mess What's the best way to achieve the, the, the maximum possible justice and equality of rights and equality of you know, justice and all that stuff? And there were disagreements. In the, and in the black community, there, there still are disagreements. There are very learned black voices, very learned black voices, scholars yeah. uh, who are conservative and who feel that the leftist I would say, say the far left approach or the hard left approach to racial equality is in many ways a disaster and is actually not, you know, not good for anyone. And, um, but those conservative voices, even though they're absolutely you know, in favor of equality and all that, uh, they're not really, they're not listened to. They, you know, they don't get airtime. They're, they're, uh, you know, they're called all kinds of bad names and everything. And so I think what we're seeing, all I'm really objecting to, in a sense, is the leftist tendency that we saw in the Soviet Union, that we saw in Cuba, that we saw in Cambodia, that we see in China, and that is to uh, drown out free speech. And if anyone doesn't agree with the party line, you're a racist, you're a bigot, you're this, you're a sexist, blah, blah, blah. So you're not allowed to disagree. You're, and there's, there, there cannot be a, a rational, ladylike, gentlemanly discussion or debate. Yeah. That's you disagree, you're just a bad person, you're evil. And, and of course, when the right takes, when, when the radical right takes power, you get something similar. So I, I, I think in many ways, the, the, the strong right is an existential threat to the country too. 
And maybe I'll just say a word about that. Why I think the the I don't know like like where does the where does the hard right end and where does the far right begin? But I so, but as far as the right, uh, I think among other things, they're probably the biggest hypocrites in the country. Because they, the, I mean, the biggest hypocrites, I think the left are not hypocrites because they don't, you know, they don't really believe in that much in free speech. But I think the people on the right are actually massively hypocritical because uh, they tend to be Christians. And as I say, if there's anything at all that Jesus would endorse in the current political landscape, it's medical care for everyone. You know, all these programs to help people. Jesus talks about the Good Samaritan. And the right will say, well, these things, you know, people should be taken care of in the private sphere, not in the public sphere. We don't want government doing it. And they're such hypocrites because they always get elected on, on small government, a small government platform, and they always increase the national debt massively. Like Clinton, for example, actually balanced the federal budget inconceivably. We had a balanced budget. And now, uh, and and then you get the you know the first you you get um, you got Bush in office, the George W. Bush, and then and then the, the current whatever it is that thing that's inhabiting the White House, you know whatever kind of creature it is. So then you um, and they massively increase the debt, so so incredible hypocrisy, and and what's the problem with increasing the national debt? which the right always does hypocritically after they get elected on, on, on a platform of um, a small government. Because when you have a huge debt, like in America, this crazy debt, it means that the national budget, like all the money the government has to spend that, come, that comes from taxes, a huge amount of it goes to paying interest on the debt. And therefore, and you even had this class of philosophers that said, no, it's good to have debt. But what that means is there's actually not that much money hmm. to help people that need help. There's not that much money to keep infrastructure in good repair. And, and so it actually cripples the government's power to help needy people, even if they wanted to. And so that's a Republican thing, you know, hypocrisy. And also in their espousing of negative rights by not positive rights, first of all, the, the, one of the main flaws in that argument that should be done by private charity is that it, um, it's grossly unrealistic. It's just like Marx didn't understand how the world really works. Neither do, neither do the, the far right, neither does the far right. And so in other words, if you're lucky, if you're lucky, and um, there are a lot of charitable, charitable people in, in your town, then you won't starve, or, or you'll get medical care, or you know, you'll just your kids will be able to go to college. And if you're not lucky, then you know maybe you will live a life in terrible pain. Maybe you will see your children, you know, suffering because you can't get the medical care or you have a pre-existing condition and so on and so forth. And so they just sort of gamble with the most basic well-being of other human lives. 
Their argument, which is a good one actually, is that government tends to be just wickedly inefficient. And when you get when the government has programs, then what you do, what happens is that you waste a huge amount of money. Most of the money goes to an inefficient government bureaucracy, and people aren't really helped that much. I mean, there's evidence. For example, Johnson, Lyndon Johnson had his new, his, uh, you know, what do they call it? New Society or whatever his program is called. I mean, we can prove that the government wasted trillions, trillions of dollars and did not actually significantly improve the welfare of the target populations. But in answer to that, I think the answer to that would be that um, states can be much more efficient hmm. because they're directly in touch. States, counties, you know, and, and, and so there is a way. If you're determined to help people, then you can find a way to get a much more efficient ratio in terms of how much taxpayer money is spent and what are the actual social benefits. So it is possible, in my view, to actually dramatically increase the efficiency of that, or all kinds of tax incentives, all kinds of incentives can be given to the private sector to give charity, which is still a government supported program. Okay. So I think the right, and, and also they also give all kinds of arguments to justify or depict as benign the radical polarity of wealth distribution radical polarity of wealth distribution. Mm -hmm. And the real fact is that when you have radical extremes where you get a lot of people with very little money who are struggling and some people who are literally filthy rich and just throw their money away on idiotic, you know, hedonistic things, uh, then people on the, on the lower end no longer identify. It's like, it's not a team. It's just like if you have, let's say, a, a basketball team and you get one player that gets like half the budget, half the team's budget for salaries, you know, it just, it just, okay. hierarchy is one thing, but hierarchy can become so extreme that it no longer is perceived by people at the lower end. They don't feel that we're all in the same system. Yes, I mean, I mean, if you perceive that, let's say, okay, here's a leader, and the leader is really making it all happen. People, you know, people in general do not begrudge that leader certain benefits, certain privileges. There's a natural human acceptance of legitimate hierarchies and equitable, uh, even hierarchy of rewards. You know, where, where even Marx said that, you know, to everyone according to their need or their it's in other words, if someone really is doing more, people in general don't begrudge that person a certain higher level of compensation. However, when the when the compensation gets to be too extreme, yeah. then it dissolves the solidarity of the system. People no longer feel we're in the same system. And when people no longer feel it. Mean, just like the Bhagavatam says that a leader should be like a father. A leader should be like a father. And so if you're working in a company or in a government or just you live in a society, you want to feel that the people who have special power and special rewards are using that power for the good of everyone. 
And when it becomes obvious, they're not. When it becomes obvious, you know, tough luck, you know, I just have a lot of money and you don't. And so that's just, you know, sorry, I don't care. And I'm going to then, and, and when people lose that sense of solidarity, when they lose it, the, when they no longer really identify with the system, the society, it starts to come apart. And so I think one of the reasons that you get this sort of some of this, some of the crazier radical leftist activity is because of the radical greed on the right. Yeah. And so I think the people on the right, in a sense, are responsible for uh, weakening the social bonds that keep us, hold us all together as a nation or as a society. Another thing they're incredibly hypocritical about is uh, they, their, um, what's the word, disdain. Their disdain for animal rights, for, for the welfare of other forms of life. And so in a sense, they are stupidly humanistic. It's funny because humanism is generally seen sort of a leftist academic position but but, but there's more of human exceptionalism that it's more yeah, of yeah, yeah that's that's what humanism is and so yeah so but not only exceptional because for example there's america i mean every country I mean, the indians think they're exceptional and they are in a sense there's an american exceptionalism but most americans even thinking america exceptional wouldn't justify genocide of other countries hmm yeah and so it's not just being exceptional. It's like you, it's being the exclusive recipient of moral consideration. Okay. And so it's, and so, and so the, uh, or for example, take gun rights. I've heard, you know, the, the, the person who's probably considered to be the most brilliant conservative legal mind of our time was that Anton Scalia who was on the Supreme Court who recently died. And I heard him give an argument that I thought was really foolish because he was a big hunter. I mean, I mean, just, you know, a big meathead and a big hunter, super enthusiastic hunter died at a hunting lodge. And uh, his argument was that, uh, anyway, I won't go into all the details based on the, the uh, Bill of Rights and and so on the right to bear arms, which really meant the right to have a, a, a people's militia. Anyway, it's a whole issue, but he gave a very bad argument, a very bad argument to justify. And we know for a fact, we know for a fact that the more people in a society own lethal weapons, the more people will use them against innocent people. Mm. We know that societies like say the UK where they very strict gun laws um, have exponentially, exponentially fewer uh, criminal killings. Because most people, you know, some people use knives or this or that, but the weapon of choice is obviously a gun. I mean, you know, killing someone with a knife is to me very messy. And so the, the weapon of choice is a gun. And so even knowing that if you have these crazy, these insanely liberal gun laws, so no background checks, you know, you may be, you may be, you may be just escape from a, from a psycho ward, but you can buy a machine gun. I mean, these crazy, crazy laws, 
we know that it causes thousands of deaths of innocent people, and yet they fight to preserve it because of the gun lobby. So, so the right, in, you know, and, and then, then again, they're against abortion. So they want to save babies, but they can kill everything else. And so, so my so conclusion bad. is, yeah, on, on the left and right, the, the heavy, I mean, the moderate left and right, I think they're both, they have some intelligent points. Mm. Moderate left and the moderate right, I think they both have some good points and some mistakes. But when you start to become extreme, because what drives extremism? Extremism means you cannot by definition be way on the left or the right unless you've divided the world into two parts. You have this sort of this infantile binary worldview in which you divide the world into two parts and we know that is flaming mode of passion. And Krishna himself says in the Bhagavad Gita that people in this state of mind ayatavit prajanati that they understand things inaccurately. They cannot see clearly. And so by definition, it, it's like this is psychological determinism that if you are really on the left or way on the right, you are not seeing things accurately. By definition, you have a warped view of the world. And so therefore, my, just last conclusion, then I'll turn it over. But my conclusion would be that we need Krishna consciousness. Yes, you know, left to their own devices, left to their own devices, the hard left and the hard right will destroy society. Both of them, both of them tend to be, in my view, ignorant, self-righteous, not righteous, self-righteous, and both of them are an existential threat to the world, as history has shown. Yes, and so the. Yeah, the middle, I think the middle position with Krishna consciousness is the solution. Yes, Maharaj, thank you. This has been a very exhaustive discussion analysis, I would say, of both left and right. So, you know, if I may summarize, as you had said about one and a half hours, you started by talking about the problems of the left. And you mentioned about, basically, on both sides, the problem is extremism. And then we went a little bit into the a history of the left, how it gets stuck in the di uh, dictatorship of the proletariat. And that's why the leftist ideologies have caused the greatest massacre in world history, genocide. And then the overall problem with the left is that it, it is operating based on its a form of determinism, but it's selective social determinism. That blacks are, that blacks behavior is determined, but not other races. So either it is true, it's not true. So there is it's interesting, left accuses the right of science denial, but you pointed out how the left also operates on science denial. And the idea is not only that we have to work against racism, but you have to work against it in our way. So in a sense, it becomes not so much sympathy for, it is, it is caring for the poor, masquerading as a way to get, grab power. And then even like you said, the Antif Antifa is against black conservatives or anti-racist conservatives. So the, so the I, problem is their opposition is not so much to ra racism, it's to conservatism also. It's just the ideology. So you talk basically left uh, left 
as an extreme level, it is very it is quite disruptive. Then at the right side, we discussed, I think three four main things. One is there's a lot of hypocrisy because uh, there is not concern for poor, so even basic basic care is not provided for. And the idea is made that uh, people will give charity, but there is one ignorance of human nature that people will automatically take up. All people will behave equally on the left side. But on the other side, all people will be people will wealthy people will behave charitably. That's the presumption, which is also utopian on the right side. And then on the right, also there is the almost not just acceptance but glamorization of radical polarity between the left between the wealthy and the poor. Like you said, in a team, if one person gets fifty percent salary, that's a very good, and then so in the sense the extreme polarity, which is advocated by the right leads to the extreme polarity on the left and the right is also right is also oblivious to animal rights so it's only not only human exceptionalism but human exclusivism almost yes. so if you so now this kind of dividing the world into polarities that is indicative of the modes of passion and ignorance so in a sense if we bring about krishna consciousness then at least people come to the mode of goodness and then we can have moderate left moderate right and then there can be Reasonable discussions and so for, and we can have responsible social uh, society, responsible policies being made for the welfare of society. Yes, Maharaj. Would you like to yeah. speak any concluding words, Maharaj? This is very wonderful discussion. Hmm. Yeah. The um, let's see. I, I just oh, thank you very much. Thank you very much for hosting me and for um, in 2012 a strike at the Mari. Kana platinum mine in South Africa ended when police, you're right, that uh, Devoni wrote in, you're right, it is police, not the army. When police opened fire, killing 34 miners. Investigations have revealed one rebel leader died trying to broker a peaceful solution. So they did open fire and they did kill dozens of people. So uh, they shot down 112 of them. Wow. So they shot down 112 people, killing 34. In any country, this would have been a traumatic moment. For South Africa, it was a special kind of nightmare since it revived images of massacres by the state in the old apartheid era with one brutal difference. This time it was predominantly black policemen with black senior officers working for black politicians who were doing the shooting. So, yeah. You see, because but again, because it's a black government, somehow you need an apologetic. It, you can't. It can't really be that they. Again, everything has to be exonerated. One last point, but thank you very much uh, that someone wrote in. Uh, I didn't really answer it. Uh, this was Maheshwari, uh, Radha Maheshwari. Situation of the black people is not equal to the white in the same Latin America. People in the favelas. Um, yeah, my point was never in this discussion that there's not a problem. That's not my point. But as far as the situation in Brazil, in which, you know, there are serious problems in Brazil, um, what I need to see is reliable information. Sorry, KD statistics, in the sense that, um, for example, Let's say I would have to know much more than I do, and I don't know about it. 
as I do in America, what are the government policies, what's the both federal and state regarding college admissions? What programs are there? And uh, are there special programs for, I know, for example, for about eight years, how many years was it they had Lula, who was a leftist president? So they had a leftist president uh, for many years there. And, uh, and he instituted many programs, socialist programs. And so before, I mean, there is a problem in Brazil, is absolutely, there's very serious social problems in Brazil. And, and so the, the issue would be exactly what are the policies, exactly what is the problem. In other words, when you see a situation like that, favelas, which is kind of like the slums, although now it's, some of them are not really slums, they're really kind of just sort of unofficial huge neighborhoods or even towns as they call them now. But uh, yeah, I think we have to know a lot about the history. We can't just immediately conclude that we know about it even if we don't know the history. So if I spoke to someone who was impartial and educated on the subject, a professional scholar who was not you know, leftist or rightist, just a scholar, and we could find out all the facts and then I, I could draw a conclusion. And so I won't really comment on Brazil because I just don't know enough about it to uh, speak with integrity about the problem. Here's something. Uh, do you see any correlation between how Vedic society was structured and what today is considered the less immoral and unethical kind of social economic model by philosophers of economics like Ludwig von Mises, Frederick Hayek, boy, whoever wrote this is uh, smart, Murray Rothbard, who believed the state is the main propeller of social injustice. Right libertarians and anarcho-capitalists used to think that the non-aggression principle and the right to private property are essential for a peaceful society. Oh, yeah, that's Srimati son. Yeah, yeah, I thought I recognized you. That's very good. I mean, you know a lot of stuff. We'd have to talk about that. And uh, unfortunately, I don't, just from that short comment you made, I feel like um, I don't want to give a strong opinion on something which when I, when I don't, I'm not comfortable that I really understand what you mean, but I'd love to have talk to you about that. Uh, but in general, the non-aggression principle and the right to private property are essential for a well, non-aggression is, um, I mean, there is a justifiable use of force, both by government and ordinary citizens. I mean, if someone, let's say you have a family, let's say you have children, and someone comes into your home with a clear intent to, to commit harm to your family, uh, and you have the means to stop that person violently, and you cannot stop the person non-violently, then I think it's obviously your duty to stop the person who's going to harm your family or just harm innocent people in general. And so anyway, thank you for the question, but we'd have to talk and I'd have to know a lot more about exactly what you mean before I could say something that might not embarrass me later. So maybe I could just end by emphasizing, again, thank you very much, Chaitanya Charan. I appreciate it very much for giving this opportunity to get myself in trouble with so many people. <laughs> and um, but Thank you I, very much for I, I, I just want to say that um, 
that um, I am strongly committed, my personal views, to uh, the principles that Krishna teaches. Krishna emphasizes equality in Bhagavad Gita. It's all over the Bhagavad Gita, equality. He says, Pandita Samadarshana, the wise, the Pandita, see everyone equally. Krishna says, Atmo Panyena Sarvatra, Samang Pashati Jorjuna, Sukham Vajati Vadukam, Sadyogi Paramomata. Krishna says, I consider the greatest yogi to be the one who has universal empathy. Universal empathy is literally what he says, Atmo Panyena Sarvatra, universal empathy. And Krishna says that um, in order to please me, in order to achieve the perfection, in chapter 12, he says, you must be sarvabhuta hitevata. You must be dedicated to the well-being of every creature, of every creature, obviously regardless of what kind of body they have, race or species. So Krishna says uh, that samohang sarvabhuteshu, I am equal to all creatures. Krishna says, Samak Sarveshu Bhuteshu Mad Bhaktiṃ Labhate Param. That in order to achieve the highest bhakti, you have to be equal to everyone. So unless you respect the equality of all living beings, you cannot achieve Krishna. You cannot be a wise person. According to Bhagavad Gita, equality, you know, deeply being committed to equality is a requirement to become Krishna conscious. And so, I mean, I may have sounded like a, uh, you know, demonic to some people by, you know, some of the remarks I made, but all that I'm really arguing for here is just being objective and reasonable and looking at all the facts. We want to create a society that is just, that treats everyone with dignity, that gives everyone equal opportunity, that makes sure that everyone has access to you know, good medical care, education, everyone is respected, everyone receives justice. That's absolutely the society we want. The question is, how do you get there? And I believe that uh, the far right and the far left are both delusional. They're both delusional about how to get to that strong society. But nowadays, if you don't accept the far left, then you're a racist and a sexist and every evil thing in the world. Not because you really are, but because you just don't mindlessly repeat all their slogans and because you care about real history and you, and you care about the numbers. Like, like what does social science show? What's really going on out there? So if you just care about those things and have a balanced view, but are totally committed to equality, you're evil. And if you, and for the point of view of, of the irrational right, if you defend and fight for positive rights, everyone has a right to good medical care, a right. Everyone has a right to a good education. Everyone has a right to justice. And it, it, you know, if, if, if you strongly defend those things, and according to a lot of people on the right, you're, you're, you know, you're subverting the constitution. So the real problem 
the real problem is the modes of passion and ignorance. That's the real problem. The modes of passion and ignorance. A society can only be efficient and just and fair and merciful when there's a strong mode of goodness. I must say, one last little kick at the left, I have to say, it was the left which ironically, ironically created the conditions for an Ayn Rand type of, oh, let me mention Ayn Rand very quickly, sorry. Ayn Rand was this refugee, I think, from communist, the Soviet Union. And she, she became sort of like this very famous person. And she was the prophet of just like absolute individualism. It's the strong individual that gets all the credit and anything which hampers the strong individual is wrong. And, and her obvious mistake was that she was completely unbalanced in terms of how much of your success is due to your own ability and initiative and how much of it is due to opportunities created by society. So for example, let's say uh, Henry Ford, who, who started this car thing, but he could only do that because he was standing on a pedestal that was held up by previous history, by the age of reason, by the scientific revolution, by the scientific, you know, by, by the age of reason, the scientific revolution, the, the application of the scientific revolution, which was called the industrial revolution and, and all the battles that were fought to free industrialists to do their work, to escape the feudal system. And so you have centuries and centuries of people fighting and working to create more freedom, more opportunity. And he stands on a pedestal He's standing on centuries of history and to say, no, he gets all the credit. He gets all the profit. No, that's, uh, well, I can't say this publicly, but I was gonna use a word. That's nonsense, let's say. That's the polite word. That's nonsense. And, and so because, let's say, I mean, I don't wanna bash Henry Ford because one of his relatives is my good friend and great Vaishnava. But let's say anything, you know, J.P. Morgan, let's go to J.P. Morgan, because as far as I know, one of his descendants is not a great Vaishnava. So, I mean, all these like robber barons, you know, or, or, or the, you know, the, the, the Russian oligarchs, the billionaires. The point is that anyone who's individually successful is standing on the shoulders of history of so many people that fought so many battles, that invented so many things, that had so many great ideas. And therefore to say, I get all the credit, I get all the profit is, is delusional, it's evil. And so for me, the, this type of out of control capitalism of Ayn Rand uh, is, is, is insanity. Because yeah, you get some credit because you made it, but uh, you owe a huge debt to society. And so we are simultaneously individual and social. We are simultaneously private and public. And every one of us has an extraordinary social debt, which ultimately is a debt to Krishna. That's why this, you know, like just let loose, you know, the robber barons, you know, the capitalists, and that's not a right-wing thing. They don't want anyone stopping the robber barons. 
And that's just based on a delusional, ignorant understanding of how history works. The relationship between society and the individual. So it's this passion and ignorance. Because when you're in passion and ignorance, you have to hate somebody. You go crazy if you don't find someone to hate. You know, back in the 60s when they had the San Francisco psychedelic rock bands, and so one of the big hits by the Jefferson Airplane was Don't You Need Somebody to Love. If you don't know that song, it's on YouTube. Anyway, so um, great song, Don't You Need Somebody to Love by the Jefferson Airplane. But the song of the hard right and left is Don't You Need Somebody to Hate. And the answer is yes. Their passion and ignorance forces them. They need someone to hate. Because when you hate, it's like, an, you know, it, for them, that's their drug. Hating is a drug because it's like a narcissistic drug. It's, it's, it's collective narcissism. Because when you hate another group of people, whether they're blacks or whites or, or, or you know, whoever, when you hate a whole group of people and you hate as a group, it's, um, you're lording over. It's, it's like, because you are absolutely virtuous and they are absolutely evil and you get to just totally lord it over half of the world. And so therefore, you know, all these, these like, as you start to go towards the, the strong left and right, it's like a gateway drug. And, and then once you get into like the hard right or left, you are intoxicated, you are on drugs, you have become a collective narcissist. And you get to hate, you get a free pass to lord it over by hatred, because hating is one of the you know main ways we lord it over things. We hate them, and therefore we're absolutely superior to them. So as far as I'm concerned, uh, the hard left and right are both simply in totally drugged out collective narcissists who exonerate themselves from all historical responsibility. I ran into a Marxist student at UCLA on a Joppa walk and, and I couldn't believe it. He actually tried to, because they, they come and they demonstrate in the UCLA campus and they, you know, they have shouting rallies. And he was trying to convince me that Stalin was actually a good guy and all the reports of his atrocities and genocide were just, that's all you know, fake news. My God. Yeah. So that's what it is. You have these collective, hateful, drugged on hatred. They're totally tripping on hatred. And uh, so therefore devotee, in my opinion, has no business in these dark extremes, political extremes. Mm. And that we should be in the mode of goodness. We should see equally. We should see everyone as part of Krishna. And if we do want to help to correct injustice, we should be very, very careful not to slip into these you know, partisan positions. We should know history. We should know social science. We should know what the hell we're talking about and not just filter out all the contrary information, which is what the you know, hard left and right do. It's called confirmation bias. It's a well-known, well-established. Yeah. Uh, psychological principle. You filter out anything which doesn't support, you're reading it, but your brain filters out anything which doesn't support your position.
So you have to be in the mode of goodness. You have to be equal to everyone in order to actually be a thinker, a sage. Krishna says, Pandita, that means scholar, that means sage. Those who are actually wise and intelligent, they see everyone equally and, and, and they, they, they check their facts. Check their facts, yes, Maharaj. So thank you very much. Thank well, you very much, Maharaj. I'm not in too much trouble now, but... Oh, no, it was wonderful. Thank you for sharing your wisdom, Maharaj. Thank you, Anil Mataji, for facilitating this. If you sent a question, by the way, if anyone sent a question and answer, I apologize. And if you write to me personally, I'll be happy to answer and we can post that. So thank you all for listening. And uh, yeah, thank I hope you. you're not too unhappy with my points. Hare Krishna. Hare Krishna. Thank you very much.